Thank you. Um, such a blessing to be with you. I wish somebody had told me about that elder affirmation thing. I would have had a few things to say about that. No, I'm just kidding. You have wonderful elders. Um, thanks for having us. It's always a blessing to be with you. And um, it's an honor and a privilege to be your speaker. Let me open this in prayer. Come now and be with us, Lord. Fill our hearts with your spirit. Open them to your word and speak to us, please. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I didn't know this, uh, but I've heard since choosing my passage for today that you are uh, doing a study now. Tony's leading a study in Ephesians. And uh, I'm going to be talking about Ephesians chapter 1 today, so uh, many of you will already know all the answers that I'm planning to give you today. Um, and I didn't know Daniel was going to be reading that this morning, uh, but uh, it's timely because I want to talk to you about this passage, this one long run-on sentence, Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. Apparently, in all the things the Spirit inspired Paul to write, he didn't inspire him uh, to know English grammar rules. Because anybody who has studied much English grammar, you know you're not supposed to write these long run-on sentences. But that's what Paul did. And it's like he just gets carried away with great things, great Christian truths. Do you know that it matters what you believe? It doesn't just matter because God has a, a test that he plans to give us at the end. You know, okay, did did you get the right understanding of, of grace and works? Check. You can go in. That, that's not the way it works. It matters because life is different according to what we believe. There's kind of a, a, a liberal version of Christianity out there that minimizes doctrine and says, well, it doesn't really matter what you think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what he did. Just, he can be a great man or a great prophet who set a really great example for us. And then you try to go out and you just try to live the right way. Do you know that is a recipe for disaster, I think, in the Christian faith? Because actually to believe those kind of things about Jesus is to inhabit a different world. It's to, it's to live in a different context. And it's like someone living in outer space and trying to do things that you do while you walk on earth. It just doesn't work that way. What you believe will always connect with the life you're living and especially this applies to what we believe and think about God. The most important thing about us, I've read somebody said this, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. I think A.W. Tozer said that. And if you think the wrong things about God, you think the wrong things about his designs for you and for the world, that will inevitably impact your life. That will impact your marriage. That will impact the way you're raising children. But thinking the right thoughts about God and his plan sets us on a, a, a path that God designed for his people to be walking on throughout human history and even into the present. And Ephesians 1 calls us into these right beliefs, into these beautiful, beautiful things about God. Do you know that song, uh, 
you're so vain. Every now and then I like to quote a secular song to prove that I'm cool. <laughs> People think I'm not cool, but they don't know that I know these songs. <laughs> Maybe this one's too old to be cool, though. I, I have to give you a more recent one. Next time, I'll think of one. The, the line says, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Do you know, I, I think maybe the, the fundamental human sin, the, the thing that's gotten us messed up more than anything else in history is vanity or pride. And I think it applies to Christians, and maybe the song would say to a lot of Christians today, you're so vain, you probably think this book is about you. And you're in there, but it's not about you. Do you know that God is the central character in the Bible? And whatever is important, whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, it centers on him. His approach to things, his, his designs for everything. Sydney and I, my oldest daughter Sydney and I, we read a lot together. And right now we're in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We read The Hobbit first. You know, Bilbo's The Hobbit, the hero in the first story. In the, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, maybe in the first volume, I can't remember for sure, there's a big council uh, that they get together to decide what to do about this ring. But it's a problem. And Bilbo ends up at the council. And as they're talking about what to do, all these uh, heroic figures together, Bilbo assumes that he's supposed to do something about it. And so he says, well, I know. I started this thing. I guess I need to finish it. And he gets ready to take it on. And Gandalf, the voice of wisdom, speaks to Bilbo. And this is what he says. Of course, my dear Bilbo, if you had really started this affair, you might be expected to finish it. But you know well enough now that starting is too great a claim for any. And that only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero. You see, J.R.R. Tolkien was a believer. He understood the texture of life in God's world. And even if you think of yourself as a hero, I hope you realize that you didn't start this thing. We didn't start this thing. Irving Church didn't start this thing. No other church started this thing. We are involved in a great work of God. The plan has been going on long before we ever set foot in the world. And now it's our time. And we step into this beautiful thing that God is doing. But it's not about us. You see, the secular world has this idea too that, that uh, basically it's about us. I mean, that's understandable if there's not a God anyway. Or if God that you believe in is irrelevant and unknowable. So you, you have things that are said like this by a guy at the University of Chicago. I haven't read this book. I, I found this quote uh, in Tim Keller's book. But he said, cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for a purpose or for God. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize that we must forget our own purposes and ethics. I'm sorry, we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purposes and they're real. Hmm, how do you do that? 
How do, you, how do you make meaning when you've denied that there is a transcendent meaning maker? How do you come up with, with moral values when you've just denied that there is a moral lawgiver outside of us? You see, once you deny that God is out there, you just step in and find the next best thing you can find, which is yourself, made in the image of God. And abracadabra, I'll be God now. I'll make meaning. I'll make value. I'll make purpose. I'll form morals, and I'll cling to them. Now, disregard the, the logical problems with that for now. That's not the purpose of this sermon, to get into Christian apologetics. But the, the basic human tendency, I think, is the same, and I think it affects the church. Is that somehow we, we displace God and sit ourselves right there in God's place instead and say, now, we can do it. We're at the center of this thing. We're in the driver's seat. And ironically, we shrink the story down so that we can become bigger. But in reality, we ourselves become small with that story. In God's story, the story is huge and grand and vast. And we are tiny, tiny things. And yet, in a way, that increases our significance because we're in on something huge. And our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ who rules the universe gives meaning and dignity to our lives in a way you can't find it anywhere else. We have to be very careful of the, the, Christian, uh, the Christ, Christian twist on this secular idea that says it's really all about us. This is what Ephesians 1 calls us away from. It calls us away from putting ourselves at the center and it says look at what God is doing. It's all about God. God is the one thinking about this. God's the one planning it. He's the one willing. He's the one acting. And he's the one blessing. And that's where you get to in the, verse, uh, the first verse of, of the passage. God is the one who blesses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The emphasis is just on blessing. And this is what God does. I don't know if there's anything more fundamental to who God is in Scripture than he is the one who blesses. And and we really need to to get over the idea that God is somehow hands-off with our universe. That he set it in motion and he backed away from it. That he's just watching it. That's what it says that... uh, a lot of people have the idea of God as this unblinking cosmic stare. Just looking, watching. That's not the God of the Bible uh, who, who just stares at the world. God has his hands on the world and he's blessing it. He created the world to bless it. Have you ever wondered why there's sunshine? You can't even get rid of it with the smog in Dallas. Why there are flowers and trees and oxygen and tastes that are delightful and a thousand different pleasures in the world. Why is that here? It's because God has his hands on our world. And the blessings are there because he actively wills them to be there. I remember reading years ago at the time, maybe because of my messed up theology, I don't know if I even liked it that he said this, but I remember reading C.S. Lewis who said that, God didn't make the world so that we could love him. He made the world so that he could love us. Is that what you think about God? A God who made the world so he could bless you? We've got to get all the bad images of God out of our head. And learn to think correctly about him. 
it will deeply, deep, deeply impact our lives. Whether or not we're thinking the right kind of things about God. He's the blessed one who blesses. And this is something we should, we should know from our experience. Both living in the world and, of course, coming into Christ, where every spiritual blessing is poured out on us. There are so many little phrases and words in here we could stop and, and talk about, and I just I can't uh, take the time on all of them. I will just say one thing about being in Christ here. You know what that means? Being in the church? Yeah. That's part of it. Um, that's the social dimension of being in Christ. It's the communal dimension. We're in Christ in the church. But I don't think that's just it. Uh, if you read the New Testament and all the, all the passages about being in Christ and Christ being in us, there's not just a social component to that. There's a mystical component to it. And we are united to Christ. Our lives are somehow absorbed into his and you're in Christ because he's in you. And everything you do is connected to Christ. And that's where these blessings are coming, these spiritual blessings, because of that union we have with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. In the heavenly places. That's a real place. Real places. If you read on down in the chapter, Paul talks about Jesus being resurrected and seated in the heavenly places. And in some, some sense, we may not fully grasp it. In some sense, we're connected to that. That world is our world now. And, and what I'm trying to say to you, I think Paul's trying to say to us, is, is believers are living in a different reality. We have a different source and a different substance to our lives. United with Christ, in the body of Christ, living from the heavenly places right here in Dallas, Texas. So we look at some of what these uh, blessings are. We get three categories of blessing here in Ephesians 1. First, we are chosen and predestined. Sometimes we look at passages about predestination. I think I probably did this at one point. I said, oh, no, because <laughs> I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> and the predestination passage, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to believe that. Well, I want to encourage you to, to believe that uh, uh, Paul was not a Calvinist either. Um, but he didn't talk about predestination in order to burden us. And he certainly didn't talk about predestination so we'd think anything bad about God. And we need to resolutely resist, resolutely resist anything that makes us think bad thoughts about God. That he would somehow be arbitrary and just want to save some people and not save other people. No, that's not what we're getting at, okay? We can spend a long time talking about the intricacies of, of Calvinism and what's called Arminianism and, and differences people have there. Let me just ground us in the truth that God is a God who loves. And he loves the world. He wants to save the world. But having that in place, then we need to stop and hear this passage, and don't rush past it to try to explain how somehow it's about us and not about God. Because that's what this passage is meant to do. It's meant to call our attention to the greatness of God in what he has done for his people. He blessed us in Christ Jesus even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now just, just stop with that for a minute. What does it mean that God would choose before the foundation of the world? He may be thinking here, Paul was grounded in the Old Testament, 
He knew about the election of Israel, how God came to Abraham on into human history, takes Abraham and forms the people out of him. That's the chosen people. But actually, Christ and the chosen people coming from Christ, which was meant never to exclude the Jews, by the way, but but growing out of the, the people of Israel, this kingdom of Christ was before the foundation of the world. This was God's design forever. And if I could just say this, this to you, this, this little phrase, if you'll just stick it in your mind, uh, preparation indicates value. Forethought and preparation to receive something indicates the value of the thing. And if you're a parent, you know about this. Especially if, if you have biological children. Uh, you know, well, either way. I mean, I'm just thinking of the nine-month waiting period, but sometimes adoption is longer than that. So you, um, you know about the preparation, the, the waiting that you do. Uh, what do you do during that time? You start making all kinds of plans, don't you? You start putting stuff in the room. You start getting the crib. You start thinking about how this is all going to work. You, you prepare for months. Why do you do that? Because of the great value of a child. And you know what an incredible thing it is to take a child into your life. And you prepare your heart and you prepare your settings and your circumstances for this child that's coming in. What Paul is indicating here for us is that God prepared for us long before we even existed. And that's not just an interesting doctrinal tidbit. That is a statement about who God is in relation to us. God wanted us. He wanted us so much that he planned for it before he made the world. And he arranged everything so that we could one day be with him in Christ. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. There's just so much here we can't talk long about. If we were going to give another sermon, we talk about how holiness is about love. You understand that? We're, we're not chosen to be holy and blameless in doctrinal purity. Or even be holy and blameless in honesty, which is important. But that's just not the very center of Christian ethics. Other things grow out of love. We're holy and blameless in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Notice what he could have said differently. He could have said he predestined us to be adopted as servants in his house. And that would be okay because, hey, we're in God's house, right? But that's not what it says. He predestined us to be employees in his business. <laughs> but that's not what he says. He predestined us to be adopted as children. That was the plan of God. According to the kind intention of his will. And then we have this little phrase that something like this caps off all three of these sections of blessing in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace. All of this just over uh, flows in, in praise to God. 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I'm, I'm uh, skipping over a little bit of what I plan to say, just moving, moving on. So, uh, look now at the second section of, of blessing here in this chapter. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You know, we talk about forgiveness so much. Uh, I think we talk about it more than we internalize it. Or maybe we uh, kind of superficially accept it rather than pausing to recognize what it actually means to be forgiven by God. Forgiveness costs God something. It came through the blood of Jesus. And the riches of his grace are poured out upon us through that great sacrifice. Let me just ask you, what kind of price tag do you place upon the forgiveness that you have received from Christ? Or let me phrase it differently. Do you think that what Jesus has done is enough to forgive your sins? Or do you think your sins are just a little bit greater than his blood? It can't quite get to you. I know it's for most people. You know, Jesus really does forgive most people. God forgives people through Jesus' sacrifice. I know that's true for most people, but I need to carry my guilt around with me. Do you realize the price that is offered to us here? Jesus dying for us? What have you done that that can't forgive? What have you done that that price won't pay for? And you might just pause. I don't normally encourage people to do this, but you might just pause and think about the worst thing you've ever done. Have you been carrying that around with you? And maybe it's not that you have seen how bad you are. Maybe it's that you haven't yet seen how good God is. And if you're choosing to carry guilt around with you, I'm not talking about you living in sin, okay? There's a different message for people who are choosing to give their lives over to sin. But if you're choosing to carry guilt around you, with you, because of things you've done, Maybe you need to stop devaluing the blood of Christ. Now I'm trying to make you feel guilty for feeling guilty. (laughs) Only so that you can get rid of all of it. Do you know that that is what secures our forgiveness? That's where we stand secure. 
We stand confident because we know what God has done for us. And we know that's enough. We know that's enough for the present time because who knows what all's in me that I'm not even aware of right now. You ever look back 10 years ago and you say, man, what was I thinking? I didn't even see that. I was justifying myself in doing that kind of stuff and it was so wrong. So glad my eyes are open now. I, I see clearly now. But then you, when you see that, do you ever stop and think about the present? What, what might actually be here now that I'm just not aware of? And people with OCD issues like me, we can spend all day on that. <laughs> oh, no. What's in there? But you know what? My confidence isn't in me. My, my security isn't about me. Our security is in the, the price that God has paid for us through Christ. See, he planned for us throughout all eternity before the world was formed. He planned for us. And then he said, I'm not going to let them go. I'm going to take care of their nasty sins. I'm going to do that. Because I'm the real hero in this story, not them. I can do that. I can get rid of it. So I'm going to take care of their sins. And he got rid of our sins. And said, come on in here. Now the ones I have chosen from all eternity, come and be here with me. That's what he did to work out. He couldn't have worked out the plan any other way. Because <laughs> we're sinners. And without, without God coming in and doing something about our sin, we're, we're forever messed up. But he worked it out for us and brought us in. That's the riches of his grace. He lavished it upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Do you know that one of the blessings that God pours out upon us is understanding? That's why we need good Christian teaching to help us understand the truths of Scripture and the truths of the gospel. It's not just something we tack on and say, oh boy, well good, I, I, I got something. Understanding what God has done is one of the greatest blessings that we have. And so he, he made it known to us, the mystery of his will. That was according to his kind int intention, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. When are you living? The fullness of time God is bringing about. This thing that he planned before he founded the world. And he began working on when he put human beings in the world. Chose a group of those people to come out and represent him to the world. This thing he worked out through Moses and the law on down through the prophets, down through the ages until we get to Christ. Now it's here in the 21st century, the fullness of time brought in, ushered in by Jesus Christ. That's his plan for the world. And that plan, get this, is to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Now just just think about this, because this is one of those things I'm afraid of, that we don't often uh, uh, reflect on in Scripture. We just kind of blow past. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, something about that. Unite all things in heaven. God's world is his world still. And we see it broken. We see it fallen. We see all kinds of opposition to God in our world. God's not planning to let his world go. This is the world he made, and this is the world he plans to save. That's the plan. 
Now, now you, if you grew up like me, you may have heard a different plan. I heard a plan that was like a, a few letters scribbled on the board. You know, uh, uh, not everybody has that same background, but uh, BRCB is uh, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's the plan. We had it written on the board all the time. I mean, sometimes you had the H, the optional H at the beginning. Um, <laughs> Uh, this was the plan. You know the problem with that? Not that those aren't, you know, believing, repenting, confessing, and, and being baptized. Those are all good things and, and things that I believe firmly in. Um, but you know what the problem with calling that the plan is? Those are all things that I do. That's all about what human beings are offering. That's not the plan. The plan doesn't center on me and how I respond. God's plan is for the whole world. God's plan includes trees and animals. God's plan includes North Korea. And when Jesus takes full rulership, North Korea and South Korea are going to be at peace. God's plan includes Israel and Palestine laying down their arms. And coming to peace under the rulership of Jesus Christ. This is the plan that we're in on. The fullness of time has come. And while we don't yet see all things brought under submission to Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, we do see Jesus. And we see that he's beginning this work. He's beginning this work here in Dallas, Texas. He's beginning this work here in the Irving Church. That's the plan of God. Everything, heaven and earth, brought into submission to Jesus. One day every knee will bow, Philippians 2 says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That includes everybody. That includes Donald Trump. That includes Vladimir Putin. Everybody is going to bow their knees to Jesus, and that's the plan. In him we have obtained an inheritance. This is our future now. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. that means that our future is going to be great. And maybe if you're relatively secure in your life, that doesn't hit you as strongly as it would hit some people. But for those who actually don't know how they're going to make it into the future, and are just struggling to get by day by day, it really sounds great that someone has uh, secured the future. Not only is it secured, it's incredible. We've obtained an inheritance I mean, what about the people who would never have an inheritance? Maybe that's you in here right now. Never, you know, because of your state in life, because of disconnection from family, whatever. No inheritance. Nothing. Everything is up to you how you're going to make it. You have obtained an inheritance. (laughs) And your future is secure. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That that indicates God's thinking about this. 
he's, he's not just haphazardly going about doing things. This is the counsel of his will. He's thought this through. And he's going to bring to completion what he thinks through. When God takes the time to work it out, you can count on it coming to pass. He's going to see it through. Just imagine what it might be like if you wanted to oppose God's plan. I'm going to go out and destroy God's plan. How are you going to do that? He's already thought about it. And he's working it out according to his own counsel. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. All of Satan and his forces are like a fly trying to stomp out an elephant to overcome the plan of God. This is going to happen. He's going to continue to bring about everything united in Christ. And it's for us to say, here we are at this moment, doing our part, joining with him in the work he has planned. Let's look at the uh, last part of this passage. Last uh, set of blessings here. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is... Paul's way of saying this is all a done deal. It's been taken care of. You can count on it. Because God has placed his mark of ownership on you like a seal that maybe a king would put on a letter and stamp it and say, this is mine. God has placed that on you by his Holy Spirit. And so you can count on it. It's the down payment or the guarantee. He's already put money in there. So he's going to finish the purchase. And that's the Holy Spirit. May I say to you that if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our gospel, then we don't have the gospel. We've got a different gospel. The Holy Spirit is what bridges the gap for us between a salvation in which we are lazy and doing nothing and a salvation in which we are obedient to God. A salvation in which we are miserable sinners and a salvation in which we are uh, conforming to the will of God. It's not that somehow we change the story again and it becomes about us and our work and our effort and how hard we've done it. It, it, It is God coming to dwell with us and change us and empower us. And that work in our heart brings us into submission to Christ. And may I say to you that that this promise, again, this is meant to be a comfort. This is not meant to be something where we say, oh, man, do I have enough of that? What, what, What if I don't feel it strongly enough? I, I tell people what C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, uh, and I, I believe this. If, if God were not wanting you, you would not be wanting him. So you can relax in that if you're worried about something. 
And the first work the Holy Spirit does in a person, and this is an experience, by the way. It is a conviction in the reality of the Lord Jesus. The first work the Spirit does, he, he brings to life in us a faith in Christ. And we say, it's true. And we deeply believe it's true, that Jesus is the risen Lord. So if you got that, you're already in. You're on the right track. And you can relax. Stop worrying about, oh, what exactly is it? Maybe I need to argue against it so that I can justify my own experiences. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. When we start with that foundation in place, then start and say, how do I have more of that? How can I be open to more of the reality of God's Spirit in my life? The realities that we read about in the New Testament, the realities that so many people who follow Christ testify to among us. Are you open to that? Are you open to more of the Holy Spirit? This is God coming. This is God's plan. And as we open ourselves up to the Spirit doing more among us, we see it and we don't just say, oh, okay, that's nice. We see it and say, the gospel is true. The plan of God is real. It will surely be brought to completion, and I am in on it. The Spirit of God is bringing it to pass right now in me, right now in you, right now among us. Praise God for his glorious grace that he's lavished upon us. I've been told that today is the day to offer an invitation. I don't know if I know how to do that anymore. But in light of what we're talking about, let me just say this. I've been in context before where an invitation can be somewhat of a, of a manip, manipulative thing. Um, and, of course, that's not always the case. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I, I don't really believe in trying to twist people's arms to get them to uh, walk down the aisle. On the other hand, I believe it can be a real blessing to you. And in light of what we're talking about with the Holy Spirit, I would ask you to pause right now and think about whether or not the Spirit is prompting you to move. And quite possibly there are people here this morning that uh, you know uh, it's on your heart right now by God, by God's Spirit that you need to come down and you need people to pray for you. And if that's the case, then you're invited to come this morning. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, you're invited to come to him this morning. If you're here and you need to confess sin, you're invited to come this morning. Jesus welcomes you. I don't have the power to welcome anybody in. But we stand in grace. All of us here stand in grace today. And Jesus, Jesus invites you to come. And so right now, if you want to go ahead and stand, and Drew's going to come up, and the praise team will come up. And you're invited to come as they, as they lead us in singing.